Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today. Just as a reminder, this show is listener-supported, so thank you for all you out there who do support me on a monthly basis. And if you wish to support me, you may go to patreon.com and look up Governed by God and sign up to become a patron there. But of course, most importantly, is simply getting the likes, the reviews, the stars, the thumbs up. All those things help to uh, get the metrics going and to get this show out to more people, which is my goal. So thank you for sharing the show with a friend, and I hope that you will do so if you have not done so yet. With that, I want to go into the law of the day. Uh, Today's law is going to be related to our main topic, which is that of climate change. So, but before we go into that very interesting topic, we do need to cover our law, but it's, it's relevant. And this law is from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. And if you wish to follow along in your copy of scripture, I truly would uh, recommend you do so. But here's what the law says, quote, If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. End quote. All right, now that law, a lot of people don't really know much about that law, or if anyone were to perhaps say that law or quote it, I, I think that few people would maybe say that that's from Scripture. It's just not very often talked about, this law. And it seems kind of random, Um, but, you know, in its location. But ultimately, the purpose of this law is to guide the people of Israel in how they are to live in the land that God has given them. And it was to limit the effect of over-harvesting by the Israelites. Essentially, as the law says, they were allowed to take the young, but they had to leave the mother. Now, what would that entail? Well, that would mean that they would allow the species to continue to propagate. If you take both the mother and the young, uh, you and you keep doing that over and over again, you are going to result in depopulation of whatever species you're referring to. If you were to take uh, the mother and not the young, just leave the young there, you would certainly just ensure their death anyways. They would not have the, uh, the mother to support them, to hatch the eggs, or to feed them. So again, it would lead to cruelty and depopulation. Now, the young that the Israelites would have taken could have been either raised and domesticated. You could think of something like ducks or, or chickens or turkeys or something, something like that. Some kind of animal that's clean that could be domesticated. Uh, you would get, obviously, you would get your first batch of animals from the wild, and then you would bring them in and begin to domesticate them. Or you could eat them. Of course, there's always that. Uh, The goal is simply to allow for the species to grow naturally, even if you are taking them for domestication purposes. Now, the purpose of this law also seeks to uh, control animal populations. So not only do we as humans have to be good stewards and take care not to um, depopulate or over-harvest something, We also have to be good stewards and keep under control those particular uh, creatures and animals that tend to overpopulate and dominate the rest. So in this law, 
uh, doesn't just apply to birds. It, it's, a, it's a principle. It's a case law from the Old Testament. And so the same thing is true with regards to the law uh, about not muzzling an ox when it's treading out the grain. It doesn't just apply to oxen. It would apply to any beast of burden that you're trying to muzzle and prevent from eating any of your food, any of the produce. So again, it's a case law. It doesn't just apply to birds. It would apply to any population of creatures that humans are supposed to steward and that they can steward. And so we want to protect weaker populations from being overrun by stronger ones. And we want to protect weaker populations from being destroyed by humans. Now, how would this apply? Maybe even today. Like I said, it applies to any species of creature. And certainly there are creatures that are very prolific and need to be controlled. One example that comes to mind is that back in Texas, where I was stationed several years ago, my wife and I, we went to an annual festival called Rattlesnake Roundup in Sweetwater, Texas. Now, I'd never been to one of these before, but it happens annually, and its purpose is to actually control the rattlesnake population of Texas, and they make a whole affair of it. They, you know, they do uh, skinning and venom harvesting, and they cook them, they eat them, they make, I guess, shoes and other ornaments out of them and out of their rattles and things like that. And, and yeah, I got to taste rattlesnake. It was interesting. But the point is, is that these things happen all across the world because if we don't do something as humans, uh, certain species will dominate other species. Now, it might be because it's our fault. Maybe we introduced a species into the wild that has no uh, counterpart. Uh, it's at the top of the food chain and it is dominating. That could happen. But it can also happen, you know, just naturally, where just certain species just reproduce faster. They're able to survive longer and they just don't they just don't get killed off as much as they as other species would. So humans have to control that in some some regard. Now, all of this to say that humans have a role to play as stewards, not over harvesting but also not just doing nothing. We have a, a role to play as far as tending the garden. Adam was given a job to tend the garden, and that involved doing something. The, the, the world had not been completed. It hadn't been finished until God said it was good when he had created mankind. And so uh, good nature is not untouched nature. It is nature that's touched by uh, the godly human hand, a human hand that's serving the Lord and obeying his law. Now, with regards to this particular law, there is no civil penalty attached. It's not, there's, there's no example here of uh, the, the elders of Israel or the king arresting somebody who's not following the law. And, you know, you, know, you just got caught uh, grabbing the mother and the eggs. Now you're getting stoned to death or something like that. Not at all. Really, the penalty is a divine one. God simply says, you know, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. It's quite simple that if we don't do a good job of stewarding um, our land and the creatures that are under our authority, it won't be long before we just lose those things, those resources. And it might certainly cut short our lives as well if um, food sources diminish and things like that. So really, it's a, re it's a reducing in the flourishing of humanity in the land to deviate 
from God's law. So we want people to be good stewards, but there's really nothing here that suggests that the government has to uh, punish people for not being good stewards. Uh, ultimately, the, the best way for stewardship to happen is through private property, just like God gave Adam a particular piece of land to work and to care for. Um, if, if we are given particular pieces of land and we are to steward those things, it's more likely to be the case that the land will be stewarded well than if it's all just given to the gigantic pot of public, uh, public ownership. Um, that, so you need that closeness of, of property, uh, of that uh, owning of the land in order to take responsibility for it and to take care of it well. So anyways, that is, uh, in a nutshell, that law uh, from Deuteronomy 22. And I think it's a very important law and a very relevant law to our main topic today, which is that of climate change and judgment. Now, I'm not going to immediately go into specifics of climate change yet. But what I do want to do is start with scripture and present to you a case from scripture of the fact that uh, an argument can be made that climate change is ultimately a source or a sign of judgment, uh, a divine sign of judgment. Now, there's more to be said on that. There's a lot of nuance to be put in that, and I hope to flesh that out here over the next um, few minutes. Uh, we'll see how far we get on today's episode. I do expect to make this kind of a two-parter. So we'll look at some of the key passages uh, here, and then we'll clean up some passages next time and look at basically the, the modern issue of climate change and uh, understanding it after having done a good job of looking through Scripture. So first, to basically provide a, an overview, uh, judgment, when we talk about judgment from God, uh, there's basically two kinds of judgment. There is a, an active judgment where basically God does something. He takes action against a particular group of people or perhaps all of humanity. So it can be quick. Just think of like a supernatural disaster, maybe something like the flood, uh, Noah's flood, or against the Egyptians, these plagues. So they're quick, they're supernatural, and they're clearly, explicitly from God. But they, are, they can also be slow, um, and that might be natural disasters, uh, things that happen um, over time, and they appear to be of natural causes, but God's hand is still behind them. Uh, one just you know can think of plague, you know the the, the black plague. Uh, there's natural causes behind the black plague, but but clearly one could argue that you know if God is 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 wiping out half of Europe, there's a sense of judgment there. Um, you also have um, other examples in in Scripture of of plagues uh, being allowed by God as a sign of judgment. They're not necessarily supernatural, but they are just the natural outworking of God's judgment, and they can be slow. And we'll see some examples of that here in Scripture. Uh, and then the last form of judgment is passive. Now, now this is kind of less commonly understood as judgment, but essentially it's God letting go of the reins, uh, the idea being that God is holding back humans from being as wicked as they could be, and when he just lets go, 
and lets us do all the damage that we can do to each other, that is a form of judgment. So part of that involves giving people over to their idolatry and to their deception. People begin to destroy the image of God in themselves. Romans 1, if you read that just very slowly, is a perfect example of passive judgment because it constantly talks about people choosing idolatry and then God gives them over. He kind of lets them go uh, down the path that they've chosen and it results in their condemnation, uh, suffering, and um, great difficulty. So the common view is that judgment is only active and quick, 10 plagues of Egypt kind of thing, but I would argue that most of the time in Scripture, judgment is slow. Okay, it's just simply the same thing over time. It's locust over time. It's darkness over time. It's plague over time. It's famine over time. It's a slow and steady version of these things. It's the it's the frog in the boiling pot of, pot of water. That's you know it's been, it's the, the water's been raised by one degree every hour or something like that. So let's get into a couple of examples here. The first is just going back pretty early, Exodus chapter 23, we see God's judgment against the Canaanites. So again, the context here is Israel is about to enter the land, and they haven't done so yet, of course. But this is what God has to say in chapter 23, verse 27. He says this to Israel, quote, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. So, there's the, uh, the passage there, and it's, it's pretty clear. God is going to use uh, a form of natural occurrences, in this case, uh, stinging insects, hornets. Uh, he's going to use those things to slowly drive out the Canaanites, and it's going to take more than a year to do so. So while Israel is going to wage war, there's going to be sudden, swift, and severe attacks using the sword. God is still using nature uh, against the Canaanites there. Another passage is the book of Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Let's take a look at those. Here's what God says to Israel, quote, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So we'll stop there. Again, in that passage, you have God driving out the nations. But in this case, God kind of personifies the land. And he says, the land is vomiting or spewing the Canaanites out. 
of it. And he's telling Israel that if you do the same thing, the land's going to vomit you out. It's going to spew you out of the land. So essentially what we, what we see here is that sin makes the land unclean. And there's a, there's a connection here between the people and the land and, of course, God and God's law. Uh, and I think that an argument can be made that this ties back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden where part of Adam's consequences for sin was cursing of the land. The land essentially went to war against Adam. Uh, if you were to personify nature in this regard, the animals, the beasts, the land itself is is at war with us because of what we did to it uh, and ultimately in breaking God's law. So there's a there's a, a man versus nature kind of thing going on here. And we see this all the time in our movies and our stories. Uh, man versus man, man versus God, man versus the devil, and man versus nature. Uh, but here we see it pretty clear that if we, if we go against God, uh, the land is going to feel it, and the land is going to respond to our behavior. And ultimately, this response is not going to be good for us. It's going to lead us to uh, being uh, vomited out, so to speak. The next passage I want to cover uh, is in Leviticus chapter 26. Now, in this passage, God is giving Israel promises concerning obedience or disobedience. So there's blessings if Israel obeys him, and there's curses if Israel disobeys him. Now, here's what uh, it says regarding one of the curses here, starting in verse 17. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit." Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. So we'll stop there, and we see that part of God's judgment is that the land is going to essentially wage war against against mankind, against his people. Uh, Quite simply, Adam was supposed to work the land and to get the fruit, right? And part of the curse is that now Adam has to toil, and by the sweat of his brow, he's going to get fruit and food and sustenance from the land. But sin makes it worse. And God says, if you disobey, if you sin, the land is going to even be more difficult to work. You're going to have to toil even harder, and it's just not going to produce the things that you wanted to produce. It's going to resist you as stewards. Uh, the earth will be like bronze. It's like imagine this hard metal trying to dig into the ground and the heavens like iron. Just there's there's no moisture there. Um, the beasts will be let loose against the people, reducing their population and making the roads uh, basically unsafe for travel. So all this is part of God's judgment. And it's, it's not something that happens swiftly. It happens over time. Now let's look at another one. That very similar passage 
it's also a passage about blessings and cursings, but it's a little bit more detailed and the language is slightly different, although it's still hinting at the same idea. And that can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 20 through 24. This is what it says. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So again, we see multiple aspects here. You have the weather. Uh, in the previous passage, it was the animals. But now we're talking about diseases. And the diseases are personified. The blight and the mildew, he says, they shall pursue you until you perish. So there's something here where these natural diseases are waging war against the wicked people. In this case, God's people, if they disobey him and violate his laws. And again, he likens the sky and the earth like metal, iron and bronze, that the rain is like powder. There's no rain. It's all dust. There's no life in it. It's a desolate, it's a desolate wasteland um, full of disease and, and heat. So it's just a very interesting that Again, we, we see this repeated uh, a concept of judgment involving slow but natural consequences tied to uh, man's sin, violating God's law, and the land responding to the sin so that you have the curse of, of Adam uh, exemplified and increased. So as we keep on sinning, the effects of the curse become more and more and more pronounced and more deadly. Um, and, you know, I think because of Jesus Christ, um, as we pursue righteousness and godliness, the effects of the curse are slowly but surely undone. There's peace, there's healing, there's restoration uh, amongst people, and I would certainly argue in the land. So uh, these are some of the main passages uh, that I wanted to get to on today's episode. Um, but we're going to cover some more uh, later. Uh, we're going to look at some of the prophets. So today we just kind of covered uh, the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, things like that. Now we're going to look next time at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel. But we're also going to look at that this does not just apply to Israel. It also applies to Babylon and Egypt, which we'll see in Ezekiel and the book of Jeremiah. So what I want to point out in all of this is that I'm trying to build a case here, and I think it, it'll be a pretty strong case that when we talk about climate change, we cannot dislocate it from sin, from God, and from God's Word. And what's interesting about this discussion, this topic, is that those who are not Christian, who are very much worried about climate change and are advocates for green energy and environmentalism, they also believe that we're sinning. Now, they don't think that we're sinning against God. 
they would say that we raped or violated Mother Nature or the Earth or something like that. So they they personify Mother Nature or the planet, and our sin ends up being against it rather than against God. But it's still religious nonetheless. And they would argue that we have sinned. We sin by um, CO2 emissions, using plastic straws, uh, eating meat, driving our cars, having a lot of air conditioning, all those things, they view those things to be sins. And their solution is typically not doing those things, just destroying those things or removing those things. Uh, Some of them would go so far as to say that our existence is a problem and that there's too many of us and that the answer is to reduce our population. Uh, That's the only way to appease or to make atonement, if you will, for sins against Mother Nature. And what I will do uh, in the next episode is we'll look at how that is a form of idolatry uh, and a complete twisting of, of Scripture, of the Gospel. It's a false Gospel in which there is no hope and there is no peace and there is no uh, resolution there. So I would just encourage you, as you think about climate change, both sides, everybody believes that there's sin going on. Well, the question is, who is being sinned against? What is a sin? And what is the answer to that sin? Um, and I think, it's, I think it's important for us to ask those questions because it's not just a scientific discussion here. Um, I know that science is very important, and we're going to look at what that means to scientifically prove climate change, although I would argue uh, that I think it's not as scientific as, as we think it is. It's more theoretical, and it's more of a matter of faith. But even even in the ancient land of Israel, there were signs of climate change. It's, it's clear that as sins happened, I imagine some of those people believed that it was due to sin, maybe against a different kind of god, maybe against Baal or Moloch or Asherah or something like that, not against the one true god. But climate change is clearly depicted in Scripture. One just has to even look at the flood of Noah as the epitome of a climate change. The whole planet's covered by water and certainly helped contribute towards a later ice age. Um, So climate change existed before there were a lot of people on the planet and before there were, you know, the industrial era and many CO2 emissions. And so if that's the case, then it's not really primarily an issue of technology. It's primarily an issue of sin. And I think we need to consider that as Christians. So again, we'll look at the prophets next time, and then we'll look at um, some of the application for today regarding climate change. Uh, So thank you again for tuning in today. I hope this was uh, interesting to you, and I encourage you to take a look at these passages, read them for yourself, and just ponder them, think through them, and and reflect on, on how they might apply today. So until next time then, take care, and